Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Will SEC football fans be chanting SEC, SEC, if Oklahoma or Texas wins the Big 12 in their final year in that conference? Meanwhile, other members of the Big 12 are trying to downplay what Oklahoma and Texas ever meant to the conference. Welcome in to SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer alongside John Adams. We will get into that conversation about the Big 12 and the swan song for Oklahoma and Texas. Also take a look at Georgia as it prepares to step into the SEC Media Days spotlight after a tumultuous offseason. But first, John, we will start with the big story out of Knoxville, Tennessee, at the end of last week, the years-long NCAA investigation into a very sloppy, reckless, and not very effective cheating scandal carried out by former coach Jeremy Pruitt and his minions. Well, that investigation has come to a close, and the verdict was really bad news for Jeremy Pruitt, a six-year show cause penalty that will further cripple his career. It's good news for the Vols, though. They played ball with the NCAA, and in a signal that this is a new day of NCAA enforcement, Tennessee avoided the dreaded postseason ban. So, John, you pouring one out for Jeremy Pruitt in, in remembrance of what a great era of college football at Tennessee under, under Jeremy Pruitt. Well, I think you will concur. It presented some great opportunities for a columnist. No question to, about that. To opine on what Jeremy, Jeremy Pruitt might do next. Uh, one of the things that, that struck me about it, I think if you go back and look at how bad the era was on the field with Jeremy Pruitt, and we look at that second year, the season opener, when it lost to 25-point 25 25-point underdog Georgia State in Neyland Stadium, and the game wasn't really as close as the eight-point final spread. That was kind of, if that game was kind of symbolic of how Jeremy Pruitt and his band of uh, <laughs> poor uh, outlaws, uh, uh, how they how they did off the field as well with this this recruiting, because it was just, uh, you know, it was. Uh, one bozo move after another. Really, it was just such a shoddy job of of cheating. We all know cheating has been a part of college athletics as long as there have been college athletics. But I think rarely have coaching staffs been uh, as shoddy and sloppy in their work as uh, Tennessee staff. Um, it, it really struck me that it kind of showed it was just another example of how poorly prepared and how out of his depth Jeremy Pruitt was as a head coach. He, yeah, as I wrote in a column, John, this was a case study in the example of the the Peter Principle, which of course is sort of the the law of business that uh, folks will get promoted up to a level in which they are finally incompetent, and that will uh, <laughs> mark their failure. And, th and that was really what happened to Jeremy Pruitt. I mean, this was a, a very successful defensive coordinator at Florida State, at Georgia, at Alabama. He worked multiple stints uh, on Nick Saban's staff, first in the off-the-field role, and then, you know, came back as, as one of, um, you know, really the, the best defensive coordinators in the country. Uh, in in his you know final years there at Alabama, but was never never cut out to be a head coach of an SEC program. This was a very unrefined individual, and that came across in the cheating. Um, you know, the NCAA found eighteen level one violations that totaled more than two hundred infractions, and this was a a recruiting and impermissible benefits scandal in which. Uh, the NCAA found more than $60,000 worth of inducements uh, or other benefits were doled out to recruits, student-athletes, 
family members. But it wasn't just to me the amount of money. I mean, you know, 60 grand, if you're familiar with the underbelly of college recruiting, as you alluded to earlier, John, particularly in the days before NIL, like I, I wasn't astonished by the dollar amount. What was astonished to me, astonishing to me was the sloppiness. I mean, you had members of Pruitt's staff texting each other about the scheme, not only on cell phones, but in university provided cell phones. I mean, that's straight out of the Hugh Freeze book of, of concealment there, doing all your conduct on the, on the cell phone that your university provides for you and can easily check the records. Um, you had Jeremy Pruitt himself and his wife involved in the handouts. Pruitt admitted to to handing out cash to a um, an athlete's family member in a in a fast food bag, um, you know this was just it, it it was it was brazen in its attempt, but it was appalling in its sloppiness. And as you pointed to John with that loss to Georgia State, I think maybe the most damning part of all this and Jeremy Pruitt was not just the amount of cheating by him and his staff uh, or the links they went to conceal it, which was very ineffective, even despite their attempts. It was, was ineffective in their attempts to conceal it. To me, the, the, the most damning part of all this is that this was a coach who was, was cheating to a high uh, degree, and yet his teams were lousy on the field. Tennessee was 16 and 19 during the Pruitt era, went three and seven during his final season in 2020. And even though this is a huge show, show cause, a six-year penalty, we've seen coaches come back from show cause penalties before. But the key ingredient usually to coming back from a show cause penalty or a scandal of some sort is you need to be a winning coach. I'm not sure how many universities are going to be willing to bend over backward to offer a second chance to a coach with a 16-19 and 19 record. I don't care what he did as a coordinator. I, I think that the path back... Uh, to being on a college sideline for Jeremy Pruitt is incredibly narrow. If uh, the screenwriters ever come off strike and we see a movie on the Jeremy Pruitt era at Tennessee, it will be a comedy, not a, <laughs> yes. not a drama about the dark side of college football. It will just be uh, a comedy and, and a pratfall type comedy. It's like, I got to rush to the ATM and get $40 to give to a player's cousin or something. It was just once one incident like that and not one after another like that. And, and I really don't think Jeremy Pruitt thought he was cheating that much. I mean, he knew he was cheating, but he didn't, it wasn't like he gave some, a player got 500000 to sign. Maybe if he'd have got that $500,000 player to sign, maybe he would have won more than 16 games in three years. But he didn't, and I think Jeremy Pruitt, and again, he just didn't think, he he just didn't handle it well. And, and his assistance might have been even worse. Uh, and, and understandably, they probably had little supervision. If Jeremy Pruitt is saying and conveying the message, well, this is no big deal. It's just sixty dollars here, one hundred and forty dollars there, two thirty another place, and I think that that set the tone, and and that's the way the staff behaved. And some of this was cash handouts. Other parts of it were uh, during that recruiting dead period in twenty twenty, the COVID year, when you couldn't have any official visitors on campus. Meaning, you know, normally in an official visit, the university. Uh, provides for hotel, meals, entertainment, that type of thing. Official visits weren't allowed in 2020. Well, Tennessee's staff was trying to conduct official visits off the books with these these cash deals and acting as if, you know, this dead period wasn't occurring. They were, you know, covering uh, recruiting visits. They were covering meals. They were covering entertainment with these cash payments, but they were very, very sloppy at covering their tracks, it came to light. And, you know, the, the bottom line is coaches who lose while cheating, they're not going to last very long. Now, I'm not saying that none of this would have come to light had Jeremy Pruitt been a winner. Some of this stuff probably would have. Would nearly this much have come to light had he, uh, you know, won 70% of his games instead of had a sub 500 record? 
I'm skeptical that this much would have come to light had his record been significantly better, but it was so sloppy. I think some of it was probably bound to come to light. Now, someone who was asleep at the wheel, John, was uh, Pruitt's boss, his athletic director, Philip Fulmer, who uh, bragged about how much he knew about Tennessee football, and that's why he was such an expert for being that AD. He knew where all the skeletons were buried. Well, he was comatose in his oversight of the football program. He either feigned or maintained ignorance to this whole ordeal, and he he was not implicated in the NCAA's findings, but uh, what he came across as is just as a, as a clueless AD who was witless about all this cheating occurring under his nose. He, of course, retired and quote-unquote retired in conjunction with Jeremy Pruitt's ouster. Not accused or implicated in, in the cheating scandal, but nonetheless, a bit of a stain, I think, on the legacy of one of the longtime pillars of Tennessee athletics who had long been seen as a villain outside Knoxville. You know, ask an Alabama fan what they think of Philip Fulmer, and uh, yeah, they'll paint a portrait of, of uh, somebody they've rooted against and rooted for the demise of, of, of many, many years. You know, as, as you well know better than I, John, Fulmer's legacy around Tennessee already was a little bit complicated. You know, some Vols fans never really forgave him for the way he wrested away the coaching job away from Johnny Majors, but he did have, you know, an army of supporters as well, thanks in part to the fact that he led Tennessee to a national championship in 1998. But regardless of what folks thought of him as a coach, I think it's undeniable that his AD tenure has to go down as a massive failure. Yeah, and, and I wrote a column on this for Monday that uh, it wasn't. It, it's almost as though he got off scot free on this, and he wasn't slammed for being, uh, you know, for not overseeing the program. He obviously didn't oversee the program, but it was as though, well, what'd you expect? He wasn't a really. He wasn't really an AD. He was just an old football coach that a a dim witted chancellor hired doing a chaotic time when Tennessee was struggling to hire a coach. One AD, John Curry, was fired. Uh, Fulmer might have had a hand in that, probably so. And then Fulmer becomes the AD. And people just, I, I don't think people looked at him as a real, ath, uh, real athletic director, someone with no expertise in administration. Uh, so they just said, well, what'd you expect? Of course he did. Uh, yeah, he was, but he was out there on the practice field. He, he was in his, I think almost in his mind, he was still kind of the coach. He was like the coach emeritus, and he was he was taking notes on what he saw, and as particularly with the offensive lineman, because that's a position he coached. That was his position of expertise, and he developed some really good offensive linemen in his time with Tennessee, and he played in the offensive line uh, at Tennessee. So that was his focus, and he just wanted to be out there. He'd put on his coaching shorts, hat, whistle around his neck, uh, neck, and go out to practice. And that's how kind of how he it symbolized how he how he spent his time. And uh, so he's, uh, I think though it it cha- will change the way a lot of people looked at him now and oh his overall legacy at UT was horned by his role as AD because now it's the 25th anniversary of Tennessee winning a national championship in football. And Philip Fulmer was the coach of that team. That's his high watermark. Okay. But then it's the 20 year anniversary of when he was, um, no 15 year anniversary. I'm sorry. Of when he was, uh, fired as, uh, as a football coach, but the pro because the program had gone downhill and, and now he's, Somewhat, it, we they didn't call it a firing, but you know that Tennessee administrators, the Chancellor Don De Plowman, uh, the President Randy Boyd, had no no intention of having Philip Fulmer continue in his AD role. So he was just gently shoved aside and given a nice severance package. And I think people are aware are aware now of, of how much he hurt the program uh, after he won a national championship there. Our colleague in the USA Today network, Adam Sparks, of 
knoxnews.com has done just a ph- phenomenal job of combing through all the all the records he obtained through an open records request um, as it pertains to this NCA investigation and, and the firing of Pruitt and the cheating scandal and the whole bit. And one of the things Adam Sparks uncovered were Philip Fulmer's notes in sort of his final days, final weeks as athletic director before the firing of Jeremy Pruitt. Now, Fulmer in his notes made it clear that he did not think Pruitt should be fired, made a bunch of excuses, some of which were frankly bizarre, had to do with weightlifting data. He referenced a 2018 loss to Vanderbilt. Just some some truly strange justifications to keep Pruitt. But also in those notes, Fulmer had a list of 16 potential candidates who, if he were tasked with hiring Pruitt's replacement, he may be thought worthy of pursuit. Now, of course, that didn't happen. As you mentioned, John, Fulmer was ushered into retirement, and he did not hire Pruitt's replacement. Danny White did and hired Josh Heupel. But Fulmer's list of 16 names, for the most part, ranged from the unqualified to the unimaginative to the unreal. There was one individual on that list, Alex French, F-R-E-N-C-H, who does not exist in the college coaching community. Alex Grinch does exist and perhaps was who Fulmer was referring to in his notes, but he spelled it Alex French. But there were three (laughs) names that I found particularly interesting on Fulmer's list, John. One was Hugh Freeze, who was coaching at Liberty at the time, now at Auburn. Now, I think Hugh Freeze, given the NCAA cheating uh, under Pruitt, would have been a strange sell, given that, well, he had a scandal of his own as it pertained to the, you know, multiple scandals at Ole Miss, let's be honest. But I think that would have been a strange sell, particularly as Tennessee tried to show contrition to the NCAA and remorse and try to avoid a postseason ban, which it successfully did. But just in terms of qualifications as a head football coach, Hugh Freeze was probably one of the most qualified people on Fulmer's list of names. Also on that list was Billy Napier, who was at Louisiana Lafayette at the time and has since been hired, of course, by Florida, entering his second season with the Gators. And additionally, a third name who's now coaching in the SEC was on Fulmer's list, Shane Beamer, who's at South Carolina, was hired that offseason by South Carolina, um, but prior to that had been an assistant coach at Oklahoma and way back when had been a graduate assistant under Fulmer at Tennessee. So just interesting to see those three names on Fulmer's list of potential candidates to replace Pruitt. And now all three guys are coaching at SEC institutions. I'm curious, John, of those three, A, who do you think would have fared the best at Tennessee? And B, and maybe it's the same answer, who do you think Tennessee fans would have rallied behind the most? Who would have resonated with the fan base best? Well, uh, ironically, I think it would be Hugh Freeze. Uh, and I don't think Tennessee administrators would have would have hired him. Because if you're being investigated by the NCA, you go after you couldn't go after another coach who's who had a scandal on his re, in his resume as he did at Ole Miss. But he he's obviously a good coach. He's won everywhere he's been. He's a good offensive coach. He beat Nick Saban twice when he was at Ole Miss. Who does that? Uh he knows the SEC. He's a good recruiter, uh, good offensive coordinator, good with quarterbacks. I think fans would have rallied around him because he's a was a much bigger name than those those other candidates you mentioned. Uh, Shane Beamer, I mean, he was an assistant coach. Uh, Billy Billy Napier was at Louisiana. He wasn't, you know, yeah, he'd been an assistant coach in the SEC, but that's kind of like. Other hires Tennessee has made in the past with Butch Jones, who was at Cincinnati and at Central Michigan, Derek Dooley, who was at Louisiana Tech, uh, those kind of guys. And then, of course, uh, 
Jeremy Pruitt, who was, had no head coaching experience. I don't think any of those guys would have – I don't think they would have known who – most fans would have known who Shane Beamer was. Um, I, I certainly agree with you on Napier. I, I don't think Vols fans would have been excited at all by Mil- Billy Napier. And I don't know how he would have done at Tennessee – um, I mean, we're seeing at Florida, he's struggling to get the wheels in motion there. I, I still in the, um, jury is out camp on, on Billy Napier. I've been maybe more hesitant than others to quickly write him off. I do think he inherited a pretty thin cupboard, especially by Florida's standards. Now he's had a world of trouble in overhauling that quarterback depth chart in particular. and. Well, we saw from the Pruitt era, era that if you don't get the quarterback right, uh, that can can topple your tenure, no doubt. But uh, I, I agree. I don't think Vols fans would have been excited about a Louisiana Lafayette coach coming to town. I also agree. I think they would have been head over heels about Hugh Freeze coming in. I differ a little bit with you on Shane Beamer. Um, I think there might have been some that were skeptical of Beamer. And yet, as you say, he was an assistant coach, but this is a household name. At least the surname is in college football, you know, son of, of Frank Beamer. He could have maybe sold the fact that he was a, a, a GA under Fulmer. And so, you know, this is where it all began for him. And he's got fond memories of Tennessee, you know, Tennessee fans like, like a lot of fan bases. Um, they like it when someone pays homage to them, pay some respect, put some respect on the name. The other thing about Beamer, and you've written about this, John, during his time at, at South Carolina, he sort of made himself out to be the guy that South Carolina fans, I mean, they love him, it seems like. They've, they've, they've gotten behind him. He's their guy. But every other fan base, it seems like he kind of gets under their skin. He's the one coach that just seems to needle so many fan bases in the SEC. And maybe he it's because South Carolina is not going quietly into the night as they used to before the days of Steve Spurrier. But I also think it's something about Beamer's personality. He has just a way of getting under the skin <laughs> of opposing fan bases. And I could see Tennessee fans kind of getting behind that. You know, they can't stand him now that he's the South coach of South that he's the coach of South Carolina. But if he was their guy, needling everybody else. I don't know. That I mean, Vols fans kind of have a way of getting under the skin of everybody else. I, I could see maybe a portion of the fan base getting behind Shane Beamer. Yeah, it, but again, I think Tennessee's hiring history, though, would have hurt him there. There's no doubt Shane Beamer could have come on at the introductory press conference and hit a home run. He could have talked up how good Tennessee was going to be. He. He's got. He's really good at rallying the troops. Uh, he he rallies the fans. I think he, his team plays hard behind his players. Play hard behind him. Uh, so I think he's really good in the motivational era. I just think it would have it would have hurt him that uh, he was only only Jeremy Pruitt removed from the Butch Jones era, who who kind of talked a big game. You might remember his introductory press conference when he said his offensive system was infallible. Hmm. Okay. Uh, but I just think people might've been more skeptical of Shane Beamer, but he is popular at South Carolina. I just don't think, uh, I don't know how much anybody on that list. I think Tennessee after another failure, just kind of cried out for a big name coach. And it didn't get that with Josh Heupel. Now it's worked out wonderfully with Josh Heupel. Um, now he is a big time coach and he's being paid for it. $9 million a year. But before he was hired, he was a three-year guy at UCF. He used to be an offensive coordinator. So I just, you know, I don't think he, the fans reacted so, uh, so great to his being the hire, but it's worked out well. So I just don't know if any of those guys on that list, uh, uh, Alex French included would have uh, would have got a quick in the pulse rights of the fan base. Alex French, the mysterious yeah. case of Alex French. That would that would be one of my favorite footnotes to this whole ordeal, John. I mean, you got the 
200 plus infractions, 18 level one violations, all these stupid text messages between members of the staff that, that, you know, just made it real easy to find the smoking gun. Despite all of that, my favorite subplot to this whole tale is the fact that Philip Fulmer, a man who spent his life in college football, a man who the only reason he got the athletic director job was because of, of what he did as a football coach and his status at Tennessee, that he came up with a list of 16 names as possible heirs to Jeremy Pruitt. And one of them was not even a real football coach. No, it, it, it's as though if, uh, if he had remained as AD, I'm, I'm extremely confident he would have made a horrible hire. Maybe, maybe Alex French. Maybe Alex French. All right, John, let's, let's change gears because it is talking season uh, in the SEC this week. It was talking season last week in the Big 12, and, and we're still sort of in early days for the SEC's media days. But I want to revisit kind of some comments last week from Big 12 media days. Some, uh, as you might expect, a little bit of chestiness from Brett Yormark, someone who's no stranger to generating headlines. He's the Big 12's commissioner, was stirring the pot a little bit recently at Big 12 Media Days when he sort of tried to downplay the exit of Oklahoma and Texas from his conference and mentioned that it's been a couple years since either one of them were in the Big 12 championship game anyway, longer for Texas in Oklahoma, but even for Oklahoma, they hadn't played in the Big 12 championship in either year. Uh, you had some coaches in that conference kind of throwing some elbows at uh, at former members of the league. Sonny Dykes took a shot at Texas A&M in Missouri. Uh, Mike Gundy was, was very outspoken in uh, his disdain for Oklahoma and its uh, ruining of the Bedlam rivalry as, as Mike Gundy sees it. And yet, Oklahoma and Texas have one more year in the conference, so they're kind of hanging around in, in this like awkward divorce in which you can't move out for for a year. The judge has decreed you got to live one more year together uh, before you get your your divorce. I'm wondering, John, you know, the SEC more than any other conference takes pride in the success of its other members, as fierce as the rivalries are in this conference. When it comes to the postseason, you know, if it's Alabama or Georgia or LSU on the big stage and you're a fan of, say, Tennessee or, uh, I, I don't know, um, you know, Florida on down the line, you're still st- chanting SEC, SEC, as that other member represents for your league and hoist the, hoist the trophy. Wondering, John, do you think SEC fans will rally behind Oklahoma and Texas this year in their final year of the Big 12? Not that it really matters. It's not like, you know, they have some special powers, uh, you know, down in Tuscaloosa or Columbia, South Carolina or Gainesville, Florida to influence outcomes in the Big 12. But do you think fans of the SEC are, are going to be supporting the Sooners and Longhorns from afar this year? Or do they not really care what happens to those teams in their their final year in their old conference? That's a really good question. I, I think you'll get mixed uh, responses there. I think fans will in, will want to see those teams do well in one respect. I think more so Oklahoma than Texas. Oklahoma has, no, it hasn't been a Big 12 championship game in the last two years or whatever, but let's not kid ourselves. Oklahoma was deep football program in that league and has been for quite a while it's uh it's the most uh, texas is a high profile program but it hasn't done what oklahoma's done so i i think tennis i think sec fans would would probably pull more for oklahoma and uh that will change quickly once they're actually competing in the sec but in a in a bowl game in the postseason part of it might be when you look back at the other additions the SEC's made in recent years, Missouri, Arkansas, uh, South Carolina, Texas A&M, none of those programs came into the SEC as, as big-time programs, as national championship contenders on a regular basis. 
So I think there's a sense of, well, Oklahoma gives us that. They've got they've got that championship resume. I think what hurts Texas in regard to fan support from current SEC fan bases is Texas acts and thinks like it's better than it is. I think that's how a lot of outsiders perceive Texas. What have you done lately? Well, you hired a lot of coaches that didn't make it. What have you done since since Mac Brown was there and Vince Young was there? Uh, so I think there's a like, and eh, Texas thinks it's a big deal. It's got its own network. Uh, so I don't, I don't, I don't think a lot of people will pull for Texas. I've been kind of fascinated by the Big 12's place in this last round of realignment the last few years, John, because. I kind of felt like they were teetering on the the brink of irrelevance after the SEC stripped away Oklahoma and Texas, its two most prized members. Previously, the SEC had seized Texas A&M and Missouri, and really the Big 12 in many ways doesn't even resemble the original Big 12 or um, you know iterations prior to that, but, but really the big 12, I mean, you know, by the addition of West Virginia and then, you know, now BYU, Cincinnati, UCF and Houston. I mean, this is not the big 12 we remember from the nineties and two thousands. However, it's no longer teetering on the, on the brink of its demise. It scored a media rights deal to keep it on the ESPN and Fox dials. Meanwhile, the Pac-12 still can't get a media rights deal across the finish line. And although the ACC has a long-term media rights deal, well, a lot of its members aren't happy about that. And that media rights deal that it's, some of its members see as kind of an unfortunate deal has sort of caused fissures in that league. And so, you know, there's two ways to look at this realignment kind of is that, yes, as many have written and we've talked about, a Super 2 has emerged from the Power Five and in many ways already existed, but is now even clearer. The Super Two is uh, more than ever the SEC and the Big Ten. And yet, if there is going to be sort of a, a pecking order here, as we look for that number three conference in the tiers, I sort of think the Big 12 has positioned itself as well as anyone for the future to be on that number three spot. I mean, yeah, there's really no replacing Oklahoma and Texas. And yet, BYU, Cincinnati, UCF, and Houston, I mean, those are some football schools that, let's say, if you're Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Arkansas, I don't know if you want to step on the field with those teams. And then you look at what those schools do in basketball. I think you could have already made the argument that the Big 12 was the best basketball conference in the nation. And now swapping out Oklahoma and Texas, yeah, Texas was a pretty good basketball school. Oklahoma, you know, in many years, you're not losing a ton there. And then you're gaining BYU, Houston, Cincinnati, three good basketball brands. Like, I think the the Big 12 has done a nice job of positioning itself for that number three perch. What do you think? Do you think it's the Big 12 in that spot? Or would you go with the ACC um, with its possession of you know football brands like Clemson and Florida State well I think at the top it's right now it's Clemson and Florida State in the ACC but when you look at overall strength of the league I like the Big 12 better I I think it has the uh, potential to be a fun league just a lot of it it's as though what was once a Big 12 weakness the way its programs were scattered all over the country with uh, Iowa State, West Virginia, Texas Tech, my goodness, uh, not regional, no regional value, no, no, it just wasn't closely knit. But now you look at it, it's almost it's taken that weakness and say, yeah, this is, uh, for lack of a better term, America's conference. We are the world. <laughs> We've got UCF, Florida Mid-State, We've got Iowa State way up there in no man's land. We've got BYU in Utah. And then you still got Texas Tech 
flung way out there. I mean, and meanwhile, John, they're they're planning to play basketball and football games, certainly basketball and yes. and football down the road, planning on playing those games down in Mexico. So, I yeah, really, you, you mentioned it's a it's a conference of the world now, I guess, in the Big 12. Well, if the first conference to to uh enjoying a team from another country, it will be the Big 12. I mean, uh, I don't know how big foot college football would be in Dublin, Ireland, but I think the Big 12 would give it a close look. So, no, but I, I just think it's an interesting league. And maybe the interest will decline when they actually start playing games. But just all these different programs and programs that have had some success, Cincinnati being in the college football playoff a couple of years ago, uh, BYU won a national championship in 1984. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting mix. And I, yeah, if I've, if I've got a choice to watch a game, an ACC game and a Big 12 game next year, I'll probably pick the Big 12. There are obviously some hurt feelings in the Big 12 right now toward departing members, I think toward the SEC a little bit. That's understandable. The SEC multiple times now has come onto Big 12 turf and has rated its membership. However, I wonder, John, if maybe the Big 12 would be wise to try to brew up a little bit of a rivalry with the SEC. Now, I don't know if the SEC will see it that way. It thinks it's in a league of its own, and its performance suggests that maybe it is. But, you know, when I hear comments from Mike Gundy about how, well, Bedlam's dead now because Oklahoma's leaving. And, you know, just the bitter feelings that typically ensue from realignment like this. I, I just wonder if that's a potential for a missed opportunity. Now, football schedules are drawn up years in advance, so it's hard to put someone on your docket for, you know, the 2024 season. There's an opening or two, but a lot of this stuff is already scheduled out. But I really think it would be wise for Big 12 members to do everything in their power to get non-conference games, as many non-conference games as possible with the SEC on the docket. You want to prove that you belong on that number three perch? You want to prove you belong in conversation with the Big 10 and the SEC, particularly when it comes time to getting spots in that 12-team college football playoff? Well, schedule games against them, beat them on the field, and... You know, you could you could kind of shut up the big bad SEC and and show them that hey, there's still some some uh, teams left in the Big Twelve that can play a little football. When you were saying that, I, I really liked that idea. When you were saying it, some potential matchups came to mind. Maybe we could have them if they wouldn't schedule each other. And I don't think the SEC would want any part of that. It what does it have to gain by beating a Big Twelve team? Hey, we're better than those guys, the SEC would say. Uh, if you could get some matchups like Oklahoma State, Oklahoma, long time, the Bedlam rivalry, renew that. Have Texas Tech play Texas. Texas Tech has upset Texas a few times through the years. It's way out there in West Texas, but Texas Tech Red Raider fans love beating Texas. Uh, Cincinnati versus Kentucky. Kentucky. Ooh, I like that one. Well, yeah. they're not that far apart when you think about yeah. it. And I like and that Mark, a lot. Mark Stoops at Kentucky's recruited a lot in the Ohio area area. Uh Texas AM versus Houston. Those schools are right there together. And at one time we're we're both in the old Southwest Conference. Uh and what could be better than UCF, the new kid on the block, taking on Florida? think how much they'd like to beat Florida and then Kansas and Missouri. Yeah. And, and some of those teams will play UCF and Florida are scheduled to play in 2024. Kansas and Missouri are renewing their rivalry in 2025. So there, there is some signs, you know, that, that something might be there, but as you go through this, I like some of these matchups. You mentioned a and M for Houston. You could also make the argument for LSU and Houston. Um, sure. You know, LSU has such a such a presence in, in that part of of Texas. You know, so many possibilities with Oklahoma. Oklahoma State would be the most natural one if if the hurt hurt pride can can be overcome there. Love the idea of of Kentucky and Cincinnati or even Kentucky and West Virginia. Um, yeah, there. 
there would be some opportunities there. I mean, Baylor's one you could pair with with any number of of teams as as well, and I think create a a good series. Baylor and Auburn will play a, a two game series beginning, uh, I believe it's in twenty twenty five. So, yeah, I don't know that the SEC does or should see the Big Twelve as a rival. You know, it's really the SEC versus the Big Ten, and they don't need to acknowledge anyone beneath them. But for the Big Twelve's sake. You should bring the SEC into your orbit as much as possible, not to steal away your members, although I'm not sure much can be done. If the SEC wants someone, they're going to get them. But as many times as you can get on the field against them, I say do it. I mean, I, I think that's an opportunity. It's not only a business opportunity for the Big 12, but it's an opportunity as it looks to you know gobble up a couple spots in that 12-team playoff. Um, I really don't see the the antipathy exists for the uh, the Big Ten that it does for the for the SEC. I think it's the SEC versus the world, pretty much. Yeah, uh, I mean the backlash of all the SEC success in every area of college football, the draft, recruiting, and of course national championships uh, makes it the 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 league everybody wants to beat. And there's nothing there's nothing better during bowl season to hear as an opponent is beating the SEC team to hear the the fans from that school mockingly chanting SEC, SEC. <laughs> they just do it. They just do it with such, uh, such spirit and such passion. They just love beating the SEC. So maybe we'll get some of these matchups in bowl games. John, at the end of this week, we'll get the media's prediction for SEC champion. And even though the media has picked Alabama seven years running, I know we both expect, and it will come as no real surprise, to see Georgia predicted to win the SEC this year. That's what you would expect for a team that has won back-to-back national championships. And yet, there's no denying it's been an incredibly tumultuous offseason for Georgia it had the tragedy back in January uh, in which an off-the-field staff member was uh, driving a, a leased vehicle at high speeds while intoxicated. And she and a passenger who's a member of the Georgia football team were both killed in that accident. Um, there were have been several other high-speed traffic incidents this offseason for Georgia and Bulldogs have spent a lot of time in the headlines uh, for reasons that you would never want as a head coach. Now, of course, there's a whole side drama brewing between the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and Georgia Athletics. We're not going to unpack all of that here. You'd need a full podcast to get into all of that. You can Google that, get yourself up to speed. But the bigger point, John, I think, is after all that's gone wrong, in this offseason for Georgia, and I don't want to downplay any of it because, as I mentioned, part of what's gone wrong has included the loss of two lives. After all that's gone wrong, though, Georgia's still going to be among the favorites to win a national championship. It's going to be the favorite to win the SEC. Do you see any of this offseason turmoil spilling onto the field come fall? Uh, Or once the games start, Will this all sort of just fade away and in come the headlines about how Georgia is college football's reigning dynasty? Yeah, I think it will all pretty much fade away. Um, and one thing about that, when, when you win back-to-back national championships, you are a, a nas- you become a national story. So anything that happens, good or bad, will be magnified. Yeah, I mean, and we've seen that in the past at various schools that once they got under a microscope after winning a championship or two, they uh, they faced a lot of challenges. Uh, however, uh, I just don't think that will carry on into the season. Once the get, as you said, this is the talking season, and maybe uh, you know, maybe it's the investigative season too. But once you start the games. Everything revolves around just that, the games and the outcomes of the games, and that's how you are evaluated. And as good as as good as Georgia is, and I, I clearly think it's a favorite in the SEC, 
uh, it could have trouble with, say, S- uh, LSU in an SEC championship, and certainly in the college football playoff. History tells us Georgia's not going to win three straight national championships. Uh, Minnesota did it in the 1930s. It just doesn't happen. Southern Cal came close uh, back in 05, but it lost to Texas in the championship game. So no matter how good is, uh, Georgia is, I just think trying to win three straight, there are too many opportunities for something to go wrong. Go back to last season, Georgia, Georgia was on the ropes against Missouri early in that fourth quarter. Now it, it pulled away. It took charge of the game. But there's a chance of that. To, there's a chance of that happening for any team. You just have an awful day and somebody upsets you. So I think that will be the challenge. But from a talent standpoint, this team may be better than last. I mean, this team may be better than last year overall, but I do think it will miss Stetson Bennett at quarterback. Yeah, there will be challenges, no doubt, to repeating. John, but it it sounds like what you're saying, and I think I agree, is those challenges won't necessarily have anything to do with these high-speed traffic incidents in the offseason. And and I think, you know, so many times folks in our position, even fans, certainly television broadcasters are are the kings and queens of this, they try to cook up some sort of narrative to explain a team's success. And you often hear so much about a team's culture, unity, their bonds, uh, you know, their, their, their brotherhood, all this type of thing. And yet, so many times, that's just like this little fairy tale, this smokescreen. And behind that smokescreen is the reality that in college football, more than any other sport, the national championship is determined by how many four- and five-star blue chippers you got on your team and then having a coaching staff that knows how to develop that talent. I mean, we've seen underdogs. You know, NCAA tournament comes to mind, certainly, in men's basketball. We've seen underdogs rise up in March and April. Other sports. I mean, when was the last time a number one seed won it all in the College World Series in baseball? Underdogs emerge in other sports. doesn't happen very often in football. I know we, we saw plucky TCU make it to the national championship last year. Well, then what happened? I mean, they became roadkill. It was a laugher. As the team with the most talent, the team with all those four- and five-star recruits that has a coaching staff that at this point is second to none in developing talent, has even inched past Alabama right now for player development, that's what it's about. You know, I'm not saying that disharmony in the locker room can't spill onto the field. You do have to have some chemistry, I think, to to win the whole kit and caboodle. But this idea, you know, that it takes some sort of special culture that only, you know, only the right coach can provide or, you know, all the stars have to align. Yeah, all the stars have to align, four and five stars. You get the four and five stars to align. I, I, I'm sorry, I just don't see that an 80 mile an hour uh, traffic ticket is is going to to stop you from winning a football game in October. And again, I don't want to downplay those incidents. You know, Kirby Smart needs to get his arms around this issue first and foremost for the safety of the players on his team and the safety of those around those individuals. That's not to trivialize the issue, but I do trivialize the issue when it comes to affecting the results on the field. Yeah, if you talk numbers, uh, 90 miles per hour speed in the offseason, but now it becomes 4-4 and even 4-3-40s. It, it just, everything uh, is refocused. Uh, and, and one of the things about these programs, and you look at the, the great teams, and the, Alabama had it, uh, has won as much as anybody. Some of LSU teams have been that way. One thing, and, and I go back to Southern Cal, which won almost won three in a row. Those best teams have something else besides talent. They have an ability to rise to the occasion when it matters. We saw that with Georgia in the Ohio State game. There, there wasn't a whole lot of difference in those two games. That was one game in which 
uh, when George's talent was ma- uh, was matched on the field, I thought. But it still prevailed in the end with one of the great clutch drives in college football history. Uh, but but that that's what matters. And you talk about closeness and culture and that kind of thing. When it comes, what it comes down to, I think, when you're playing for championships, is that ability to pull together in those precious moments when when the odds seem against you and you're kind of you're teetering a bit, and these talented guys can all come together and and pull through, and that's what Georgia did last year. We'll see if it it can do it again. My mind's still trying to drum up some more of those Big 12 SEC matchups, John. We had the Big 12 SEC Challenge for years in men's and women's basketball. (laughs) It was really a pretty good basketball series, uh, both on the men's and women's side. I I know it's hard to to get new football games on the schedule. It's done so, so far into the future. But, boy, if there's there's any opening, I'd like to drum up a few more. You, Big 12 SEC matchups. You like the Cincinnati-Kentucky uh, matchup more than I thought you would. I do. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, Kentucky plays Louisville now. Uh, that's fine. They can keep that going. But toughen up that schedule, Kentucky, right? I mean, we've, we've constantly picked on the Cats for loading up the schedule with cupcakes. All right. We'll put Cincinnati on, on the schedule well, in addition to, to Louisville. I don't well, know if Kentucky would ever go for that, but I like the idea. Well, 10 years ago, Kentucky might have scheduled Cincinnati. Exactly. But but not now. Not now. All right, John, we'll leave it there. We'll pick it up next week. Thanks for listening to this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.